the uh, Buddha constantly points to our need to reason and our capacity for intelligence. Uh, and that's the way that he starts leading us down a certain path. But it's like building a foundation. I mean, when you build a foundation, you don't move into the foundation unless you want to live in the basement. But if you want to move above ground, uh, then there's additional building that has to be done. And sometimes when we get a hold to something, we uh, tenaciously cling to that, and that becomes the everything for us. But really, we're just rolling around in the basement. Um, and so my message for you today is something like, it's time to get out of the kiddie pool. Our capacity to deal with the vicissitudes of life is important. But that does not give us an understanding of life nor does it allow us to move beyond what we consider life or living and to apprehend reality directly. And so he starts us off with these kinds of pithy sayings that like they don't make a bit of sense. And yet we grasp hold to them because we're like, wow, if I had that kind of mind, you know, I remember when I uh, became a Taoist, and I, I became a Taoist because I'd read these lofty sayings of Lao Tzu and, and all of these Chinese great masters, and I'm like, what kind of mind even comes up with this stuff, you know? And that's what I wanted, you know? So I'm out there with my, uh, me and Pondadipa with our great master, and one day he looks at, at Pondadipa, he's okay. He looks at me and said, Buddhism is for you. And I'm like, no, 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 I already looked at that. I'm not interested in that. You know, I looked at that, you know, like I guess about then, it was maybe five years earlier, 85, 95, oh, 15 years earlier. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not interested in that. He looked at me against the Buddhism you and took me straightway to a Buddhist monastery, a nunnery, and had those nuns ordain me right then, right there. And, and nobody spoke any English, you know. I got a piece of paper that's all in Chinese, a little booklet. And this is when you, and they said, when you get home, go find a, a Chan monastery and you, and you study there. So I come back, every monastery speaks Chinese. And, you know, there was nowhere to go. So I went to Tibetan for a while, and then I went to Theravada for a while and something like that. And that's how it happened. But I'm so glad that he did because it was not time for me to get out of the kiddie pool. And without... I needed, I needed a teacher. I needed someone who could take my hand and take me step by step by step. And not despising small beginnings, not having, um, not pontificating and, and appearing to be so, um, so deep and so wise and so accomplished, but still having the, the mystery, the curiosity that comes when one is on a deep, deep internal uh, search. And how the perfect teacher takes you from exactly where you are to the next step. In exactly the way that you can understand it. 
And so he says that we are, have different temperaments. We have different ways of seeing things. Even when we go into meditation, he says one experiences it like this, like uh, soft cotton moving across the way. One experiences it like this, like uh, being jettisoned into, uh, into the uh, atmosphere and you're seeing um, stars shooting by. One experiences it like this. And, he said, and, and that's according to our temperaments. It's according to the ways we see and know things. So if we become a Paul parrot and we're trying to manufacture or see or not, and after a while you keep dreaming up something, it will become real to you. Then, But that's somebody else's experience. That's somebody else's way of knowing something, of understanding something. And so you look at where we are today and we have all these people who are full of suffering and all these people who are full of self constantly talking about you know, being so uh, so clearly seeing things as they are. What things as they are are they talking about? And and uh, so full of self, but saying I'm totally selfless because they have not even seen through direct apprehension. So the Buddha says this is all about a direct way. What I love about Buddhism, like we call it an ism, but and we call it some of religion, and some call it a psychology, but to me, it's everything. So when we take it and make it a religion, make it a psychology, we have just missed the whole thing. So anyone on a spiritual journey of awakening is a Buddhist, whether they call themselves by any other name. I happened to uh, do a little research the other night, and and I was reading about um, you know the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1949, I believe it was 45 or 49, uh, and how you know there was uh, they kept them hidden because they said it would upend Christianity if these were if these were put out, and so uh, but the the thing that I found the most uh, amazing was they were saying how the Essenes moved into that train of thought as a result of the Buddhist missionaries who came from India traveling, you know, along the Silk Road and coming down and stopping in the ports in the middle in the Middle East. And now I remember that I used to say, well, you know, this, why'd you leave Christianity? I said, I never left. I just kept going. I'm, just, I'm, I'm still Christian. I'm just further down the road, you know. And over here they call it this. They call it Buddhism. But to me it's all the same thing. You can call it the ism, you can call it noism, you know. That's just us using words to try to identify, but it narrows us down. It clamps us down and it cuts us off from the full vision that's what allows them in the, no, the God that can be named is not the true God. And once we name it, we have ruined it because we've concretized it around something. And this whole path, this whole way of awakening is to break down that concretization, that stoniness, so that we can find out what is real. So I was doing a little research and it talked about 
the three kinds of fermentation. Um, and now, fermentation is, um, well, let's say when you mix two things together and they produce like a, a third thing as a result of their coming together and acting as a catalyst upon one another. Um, so, uh, like that's how we get alcohol, like when we, you know, mix uh, sugar uh, with uh, fruit and we let it sit and ferment and it becomes Alcohol is the third thing. It wasn't there before. It was the fruit and the sugar. It wasn't there before. But now it has come into existence. And he said that this is the way thought is for us. It wasn't there before, but when we mix this with this, they come together and they form this. And he called them fermentations because they are based on partial knowledge. Therefore, we have a partial realization, but we think it is the absolute realization. For instance, mm, looking out over the horizon and it appears to be flat. And so we assume due to our, our incomplete generalization or overgeneralization, we conclude that the earth must be flat. And it's a made up, brewed up assumption. Of course, you know, they have this movement out here right now. This is the flat earth movement. I That's okay. And and this was true. This we know this by history, because for a long time they chop off your head if you had any came to any other conclusion than that the earth was flat. But the Buddha said, we do this all the time. We meet somebody for five minutes and we think we know them all together. We walk past them, we just don't like them. No reason, we just don't like the way they look or something. We're constantly fermenting, creating something else other than what it is. Now he starts here, it goes way, way, way far. And last night, it took me, the Dharma took me like way, way, way far. But we can't do it all in, in an hour. But right there is where we have to start. And so he gave us some instruction. He said, let go of the past. Because whatever frame of mind or whatever minuscule snippet you got of something has formed and fixed an opinion in you. And when you bring it over into the present moment, you have fermentation. And fermentation is the, and that kind of fermentation is the cause of so much of our Suffering, our hard-heartedness against one another. Oh, this is not for the weak and the faint of heart. This is not for the one who is not committed to laying it all down. This is the conversation for the one who is. 
It's not for the one who says, I think I'm at 95, all I need is five. It's for the one who's willing to sell everything they have to buy that which is most precious. They have to decide which one you are. Or you'll roll around with ordinary people thinking you have an exalted mind. And so he said, let go of the past because it erroneously informs the present moment. He said, let go of the future. The future should not be desired and especially it should not create an urgency. These are our kiddie pool baby steps. Just dealing with this. And if we could just deal with this, that would be all we have to deal with. But we want to skip over that and go to all these highfalutin deep places. Uh, you know, we want to go up to the high places. And because we have not entered into the fundamentals, we cannot get there. So then we like just lower the bar. How low do we want to go? Now this is a very serious conversation, but it should be exciting to you because it was exciting to me when I was offered this insight to come and take a look and see. It would be a shame to spend your whole life reaching for something and never and miss it, never, never inherit it. You know, just fooling ourselves and trying to fool others. So whenever I feel a sense of urgency about the future, then I know I'm brewing something. And it uh, requires that I take a step back. Cannot pass, go, cannot go forward until there is ease. That's the training. And it is a training. Because, you know, some of us, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Like, some of us know how to survive. Some of us have had our muscles exercised by reason of use. We can handle the tough things because we've lived a tough life. We've had to go through many obstacles. So what comes and appears to be obstacles for some folk who ain't never been through that much? Uh, nothing to us. We know how to go through adversity. But he says, when you feel that sense of urgency, know that you are brewing something. So we need to understand why we meditate and what the different kinds of meditations do and what the different objects or subjects of meditation, I mean, what they are designed for, what they are designed to help break down or to illuminate or to build up. If we don't know that, we're like just rolling in the deep. But we're not coming away with anything. 
And so he talked about three kinds of fermentation. One being the fermentation that's joined with uh, sensuality. And that is, you know, if you start talking about uh, uh, the Dharma and Buddhism, right away people start thinking about suffering. <laughs> it's always about suffering and it always seems so negative. The Buddha said, well, okay, here's the real deal. This is that, that we have a little bit of joy and happiness in our ordinary life. But, and so we think like that's worth cleaving and holding on to, finding those sweet spots. He said, but the truth of the matter is that the majority of it is either neutral or it's negative. There are very few sweet spots. So yes, you can hold that sweet spot, but we have this idea about life, and that's why we feel so uh, disappointed sometimes. It's why we come up to, after 40 or 50 years, this, this kind of crisis, because we have taken that which is essentially full of dukkha. And we have said it's not supposed to be like this, but it is what it is. And the thing about accepting it is what sets us free. I don't expect a day to go by that I don't have three or four things that could call themselves a crisis in my life. I don't expect a day to go by that I don't encounter somebody who doesn't like me for some reason or no reason. I don't expect a day to go by. And it's not like walking around for cloud or some going to have some gloom today. No, it's just knowing that that's what goes in the course of a day because people are people. And we're all battling and dealing with our ignorance whether we know it or not. But knowing it allows you to meet up with it and know that's what goes in the course of a day. And, and unless I die tonight, tomorrow be another day. No. It's that constant staying fresh and starting over. Staying loose enough and, and uh, is this self-possessed a word? I just made it up. Being this self-possessed enough. To let each day stand on its own merit. See what is possible in the course of a day. What kind of transformation is possible in the heart and in the mind. This is what gives a sense of purpose and a joy to opening the eyes in the morning. Because otherwise, you just got samsara the next day. More of the same. If you look at it that way. And then he talked about the mental fermentation that's linked with becoming. And that's like, um, see, you know, laying out our plans about what we're going to be, what we're going to have, what we're going to do. And it's okay to have some. <laughs> Just don't be attached to them. 
because the attachment to them is where the concoction gets brewed. And so it takes time and focus for us to learn to live this way. Because the critical thinking mind that's based on the senses, what we see here, taste, touch, smell, and think, cause the fermentation and the obscuration of things as they are. They become things as they are to me. (laughs) And then the third one is the fermentation associated with ignorance or the misconceptions that we make by holding on to the previous view that we had. So that means that sometimes we can't even see the transformation that's taking place in front of us. Sometimes we can't even see the transformation that's taking place inside of us. Sometimes we can't see. And so he gives us a training that helps us step away from all of that. And I'm going to read Anna Rudy. You know he's one of my favorites. Because Anna Ruta was the one that when the Buddha was in a community and they're all bickering and carrying on, and he said, friends, don't fight. And they say, look, Buddha, we got this. You're visiting in our camp today. And they told him that three times. So, you know, if they talk to him like that, don't you think I expect people to talk to me in ways like that? Of course. Of course I do. And so, so should you. We have to be able to handle these kinds of things. So he went back to them again and said, guys, don't fight. And they said, we told you we got this. If there's going to be anything that comes out of it that's not good, it's not on you, Buddha, because you're not in it. It's on us. We, 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 can ha- we can take it. We can take it on. So he said, well, just let them do what they want to do. Then he got his bone. He left. And he went down the road and hooked up with another group of meditators. It was Anna Ruta and his and his crew, and he said, "How are you all getting along?" He said, oh, we're, they, "They said, oh, we're blending like milk and water.'" He said, "Yeah, well, how do you do that?" He said, "Well, when one gets up and starts doing something, the other comes to help. You know, if one goes out for alms food, the other sets the table. If one is late getting back and there's no food left, they just clean up. They say you didn't leave me any food." He said, "They just clean up. They were late." He said, these kinds of ways we blend. He said, because we think to ourselves, what a boon, a great boon it is for us to be together in fellowship. Why then should I not, uh, why should then I try to do what I want to do? Why not do what my brethren want to do? The appreciation, the deep appreciation for them being there with us in this life, cultivating this life. It takes a cultivation of this because the world has taught us something different. And then we come together 
And we have to learn a different way of being with one another. A way that in the beginning feels extremely vulnerable. But when we go for broke, when we sell it all to buy that precious feel, <laughs> then we awaken to something. You can't intellectualize this. It has to be a direct experience. And this is the great hope that the Dharma offers. We don't get together for discussion, but for personal transformation and it cost us something what will you give for it that is the question so no this wasn't Anna Ruda sorry wrong story this was Sarah Putin who um, I think the Buddha considered him his closest kind of inside the door disciple who had one of the greatest realizations and he once said to the Buddha, it is to be expected, venerable sir, that any noble disciple who has faith, who has aroused energy and established awareness, and who is concentrated, will understand reality thus. This samsara, these rounds of rebirth, we ain't even talking about one life, we're talking about rounds of rebirth is without discoverable beginning. Any first point or first cause for beings roaming and wandering on, blinded by ignorance, bound by craving, cannot ever be seen. But what can indeed be experienced is the traceless fading and ceasing of ignorance. So when one knows for oneself, that the scales of ignorance are falling from their eyes. It becomes the basis of your faith. It becomes that which you build upon. Your own individual at this stage kind of um, reckoning that there is some advancement in the cultivation of your basic humanity. And as you sense this advancement, this development, your faith based on experience, the confidence that comes from that begins to increase. So the confidence is not in oneself. The confidence is in the truth itself. And the way it reveals itself to you and functions inside of you. And so when I step forward on something that I'm not sure about, I put it to the test in the cauldron of my experience. And I know for myself that a little bit of ignorance has been dispelled. A little bit of ease has been attained. And it was an ease that didn't harm me and it didn't harm another. Then I know something directly. And it gives me encouragement and fortitude and confidence and strength that I can exert 
more effort in there, that that is a harmless way. It is a harmless path, and yet it is powerful to the breaking of yokes. And so he says, one can see that there is this mass of darkness blinded by ignorance, bound by craving. But one can indeed experience the traceless fading away and ceasing of that gradually. He said, and that is the peaceful state. That is the supreme state for which one enters this path. What is that? He said, that is the stilling of all mental construction, of all fabricated thoughts based on partial and faulty information that has come through the senses. And I mean, the senses, that's like, that's all we got. So we're being asked to give up all that we hold on to inherit something else. And he said, the first step is, first step, the stilling of all mental construction. So when we're doing concentration meditation, it is for a purpose. And some people say, oh, you just need to do enough, you know, um, samata until you know the mind is sort of settled, but that's not it. He said to and and then they go into a meditation and we're noting and we're doing all these things, but that's not what he said. He said coming to the absolute stilling of all thought. So there is an objective, there is a goal, and there is a method by which we can get there. There is a place where the critical thinking mind powers down and you know that you've absolutely entered to another dimension, a broader, vaster dimension of reality. And it is knowable only through direct experience, not through reading about it. And so we train. He said, this is the first level of meditative attainment. The first one. And that's the only thing that we have to work towards. That's it. That's like wading out into the middle of the stream. And knowing that when you stepping off of the edge of a lake or a stream or, you know, or, or a beach. Yes, your feet get kind of stuck in the sand or in the mud, and it's kind of, kind of plodding. And like if you're out like along a sea, you have seaweeds that get all caught and wrapped up around your ankles. And, you know, you, uh, from the movement of the water, and you have to break through that. But the further out you go, less seaweed there is. The further out you go, the water itself has smoothed the way, the ground for you. And so you go out wading further and further. And the buoyancy of the water lifts you 
And it's less and less effort. Not more and more effort. It's less and less effort. So we're learning how to cease from efforting. We're learning to labor, to enter into the rest. And as we go out so far, we start to feel the movement of the current. It becomes stronger and stronger. And we get out so far that all we do is retract our legs and the current takes us downstream. Nothing else we have to do. All we have to do is leave that shore. And so he says the first level of meditative attainment is the stilling of all mental construction. The it's the relinquishment of acquisitions. Everything we have, even down to relinquishing the sense of an I. I've given up everything. All that's left is me. And the Dharma asked for that too. <laughs> the giving up even of the I. And the elimination of all craving. If I get it, wonderful. If I don't get it, wonderful. It's kind of like that. Then how can anything in life thwart you? If you get it, fantastic. If you don't get it, fantastic. Either way. And then it talks about complete Disenchanting, disillusion, disillusionment. Now that's like going too far. You know, it was okay like giving up my craving because that can make me feel a little bit better. Like I know my craving makes me suffer. Show me how to give that up. I'm willing. Okay. It's okay like my monkey mind or all these thoughts are like constantly, you know, uh, uh, bringing me down or making me angry or what you know you know it's the thought making me angry right and so that's how we think about yeah yeah show me how to give that up that's wonderful but now you're talking about everything that i find enjoyable like becoming disillusioned with that even now booty you're gone too far but what he's actually saying is that when you get to a certain place, no matter how much you might enjoy something, you remain cognizant that it cannot bring lasting happiness because it is impermanent in nature. Necessarily, there's going to be a change. You know, we are of the nature to grow old, to get sick and die. Everything and everybody we love will be separated from. No way to avoid it. But if we keep that in mind, it tempers our excitement and our clinging and our grasping and our craving around things. That if I don't just get this, I'm going to die. If I don't just have him, I can't live. If I don't it takes that away from us. And so this disillusionment, because we see the true nature of things being impermanent, having no essential substance, 
accepting that there is no security to be found in the world anywhere allows us to be in the world and not be disappointed. And in this way, this disillusionment with expectations of the world offering us what we manufacture in our heads it will give us goes away. And there we find our bits of freedom. And he said that unique comprehension is only born of direct experience and that gives us the true capacity to understand. It's this kind of understanding that brings the release. It's this kind of understanding that allows us to experience the vicissitudes of life, the joys and the things that bring us sadness. It's not being unfeeling. It allows us to touch in a real and a living way these things. It's not that we cut ourselves off from them and become unfeeling. We can feel and still not be moved. We can feel and get knocked off our game and get right back on. We can be with what is happening and with someone and there can be a uh, like a, a, a cognizant, a Cognition, cognizant, a cognizant uh, empathy, you know. Not a, I hear what you're saying, but but I feel what you're feeling. It is the capacity that destroys the division between two, so that the two become one. And it gives us the capacity to be present for others in this world. We can stop taking things so personally. We will stop worrying about what other people think and say about us. We will just be looking to find the wisdom in the moment that will bring about the best result. For all sides. It will enable us to stop dwelling on the past and formulating our game plan in the future based on what happened to us in the past. Yes, those things did happen, but that was then it's not happening now but the moment I overlay that on this then the suffering comes with it it allows us to do what we have to do it reminds us that we can be 
unbiased when making a decision, even when it concerns us. So many times my children would be upset with me because I'd make a decision to do something with other kids maybe in the neighborhood, give them something, or with the foster kids we had, and didn't do it for my children. They come, you know, trying to do a mutiny on me. You know, and they couldn't understand well, Mom, why you do it for them, and you say no to us. And I try to explain why, you know, because they had a different experience. If I say being at 10, and my son comes in after 10, and the foster kid comes in after 10. One of them got strung up. And it wasn't the foster kid. It was my son. He's been up under my roof for 16 years. He knows the way. This other one is learning the way. And so there was a different way. He said, no, all things should be equal. Treat no, because every experience is not equal. Every person's life, every person's journey is not equal. You have to have a discrimination to know what is needful in this situation. And that goes even down to oneself. What is needful in my situation? <laughs> hmm being able to apply a salve to one's own suffering. Not just for others, but for oneself. Most of us are still stuck there, trying to heal our wounds. And we do all kinds of things. You know me. We do all kinds of things trying to heal our wounds out there, to help others out there. Because it's too painful to embrace oneself. But that's where we need to start. If that's our situation, that's a full-time job, and that's all that's required. Learning to accept oneself, coming to truly know oneself. Buddha said, to know oneself is to know the Dharma. It's not some information we're trying to get out there about blah, blah. It's about really knowing oneself. To know oneself is to know the Dharma. To know oneself fully is to forget the self and to forget the self is to apprehend the 10,000 things if you want to inherit the fullness of the measure of the Dharma get to know yourself and so when we sit this is what Sarah Puta said, for those who get, and I'm through, for those who get uh, tired of sitting, for those who think that there's nothing happening when they sit, for those who are striving uh, again and again, this is what he said. Venerable sir, one must strive again and again along this very 
way, repeatedly recollecting in this way, again and again, concentrating his mind over and over again, understanding only in this way that there must be the stilling of all mental construction, the relinquishment of all acquisition, the elimination, uprooting of all craving, and coming to a complete disenchanting disillusion. And on the other side of that is the final ceasing and nibbana. So for those of us who say, I try over and over and over and over, but nothing's happening. It's a no problem. Then you're on the right path. Just keep trying over and over and over and over. You know, that's all. And you're sitting. And the mind strays away from the object. No problem. Take it back to the object. This is the thing over and over and over and over and over and over. But one day, something sticks. But you got to know that you're not doing it wrong. You got to know that you're doing it right. That you're sitting there and over and over taking the mind back, training the mind to rest. And then one day it just powers down. And you cross this threshold and you find yourself in a place an expansive place where, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like past, present, future, nothing, something, everything is there. You know, that movie The Matrix wasn't that far off. They opened the door and it was a whole different world. He said, too much, too much. Close the door, I'll just live in delusion." No, and if you choose that, then like step forward boldly. You know, I used to always say like when I was, you know, if I was going to hell, I was going to hell big time. You know, I was just going to do what I was going to do. You know, if I had to pay the price, you know, I would just say it's no, you know, no big sin and little sin, all sin is sin. Then I'm going to go for the gusto, you know, if I'm going to, if that's the consequence, you know. So. In this way, he encourages us to not get weary in well-doing. In this way, we are encouraged that this is the way of new beginnings, of starting over. Every day, every hour, every moment. This is the way of constantly reviewing, thinking about a thing before we do it, before we say it. Thinking about a thing while we're doing it, while we're saying it. Thinking about a thing after we've done it, after we've said it. And if there be any merit, if there be any virtue in the way we executed, or the way we are executing, or the way we will execute, then he said, carry on with it. But when we detect, within our own self, from our own inner integrity, that it could be done better. It could be said better. It could be carried out better. He said, stop right where you are 
and make the change. To do that, we have to be weakening, letting go of the conceit I. That's knowing oneself. Moving towards forgetting oneself to inherit the 10,000 things. So continue to sit. You don't have to sit for long periods of time. Just sit five minutes, 10 minutes, 15. Now, you know, we're talking about three years later, you're still sitting five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Now, the effort part's lacking, right? You know, uh, but we bump that up gradually as we start to see some progress, as we reflect back and see we are making progress, as we look and when we can recognize that progress, we can look at others and we can recognize progress. And it makes us recalibrate, being willing to drop our views and our opinions, doing the best we can in this way. And even if we make a mistake, being able to just recognize, that was a mistake. Change up. Go in a different direction. And you'll resume your faith that's born of right effort. The quick, the pithy instruction is if you're in a low state of mind, the brilliance you encounter in the mm, in the meditation, it will be dim. If you're in a midland state of mind, it will be more luminous, less fog. You can see more clearly. And in a high state of mind, it'll be vast and you can see clearly. And you'll gain insights and answers to questions you didn't even ask because you just sink into the sea, S-E-A, of knowing. So he says, before you do this, lay aside all covetousness and grief for the world. For these few minutes or this half an hour or this hour that I'm going to sit, I'm setting, I'm laying aside everything, all my worries, all my anxieties, like all my joys, all the things I've had, all my wants, everything. I'm laying that aside for just these few minutes and I'm going to focus right here, right now. If I'm giving 15 minutes to it, then there's no point in six minutes in getting bored because I've already committed 15 minutes. The set the amount of time you'll commit. And what am I doing? I'm just sitting here. Nothing else. I'm just sitting here. Something happens. Something doesn't happen. I'm here for the full 15 minutes or the full 30 minutes. That's it. Making that commitment. And then laying aside covetousness and grief for work. Uh, a willingly setting aside for this space of time only. You can pick it up later, but right now. All offense, all humiliation, all disgust. That's it. 
So for these 15 minutes, I ain't going to be mad with nobody. I ain't hating on nobody. For these 15 minutes, I won't be craving anything. I won't be th- for these fi- Just for these 15 minutes. That's it. It says, and then begin to imbue the mind with loving kindness. Kindness for all people. You know, not just who's close to me. You know, you don't even have to uh, be discriminating. Like, I want kindness for Hay, kindness for Panya Deepa, kind, no, but just indiscriminately sending forth kindness. I embrace everybody, everything. Just sending forth kindness and finding out the capacity for a stream of kindness to flow forth from you. Not only through from the front, from the back, from the sides, the cardinal directions, above and below, all ten directions. Just experiencing the capacity for being kind. He said, and it will lift you so that when you go and start focusing on your object, you'll be perched up a little high on the ridge. But if you take that from loving kindness to also compassion, cognitive empathy, covering one, says then you'll go up a little higher on the ridge. And if you add to that uh, a, a a kind of altruistic joy, just joy in the successes of others. I'm happy when I win. I'm happy when you win. In the beginning, I was happier, though, if I win, if it's between me and you. Like, I'd rather it to be me. But if it can't be me, then I'm happy for you. But we can get to a place that we're happy whoever wins. Happy that somebody won. So that the day when I lose, I know somebody's winning somewhere. And I can just, like... Fall into that and be happy because they won. Somebody's winning. That gives me hope that maybe tomorrow it might fall on me. Yeah. I don't know what's ripening. And he said, and when you have fulfilled that, then an equanimity comes. It's not equanimity until you've gone over the top with that. Because... Going over the top allows the equanimity. That kind of peacefulness. When you've done all. And then you can sit. And when you do, you'll find that it's so sublime. The mind actually will power down. But you got to build that foundation. Spend time building that foundation and you can build a structure that's high. If not, we'll all continue to roll around in the basement. Is that enough for you? May you be well and happy and peaceful. May you be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life. Yeah. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.